Well, good morning. If you have uh, scriptures handy, go ahead and turn to the book of Psalms right there in the middle. And you're, we're going to be looking at Psalm 65 together. Um, we've got some handouts being handed out. Um, I want to echo the prayer for um, Pastor Scott and his, his family. I uh, talked with them uh, some this week, and uh, they're they're doing well, but they've got a lot uh, a lot on them, obviously, trying to pack up a, an entire um, a household and uh, and and move uh, from Maine to here. But just be praying for them as they are uh, rightfully um, dealing with the emotions of saying goodbye to church to a church that they uh, deeply love um, and, and folks around there. So. Be praying for them. Be praying for the kids. Is uh, for them. They've only been in this one school their entire lives, so that's tough to leave the, the school. So just be praying. But by the grace of God, um, uh, the church where he is, they have already selected the next pastor, and that pastor is supposed to be there in August. So that is a uh, a big answer to prayer. Um, and so now we are left praying for the church that the guy is coming to from Maine. His church, which is in Indiana, is now going to be without a pastor. So we're now praying for that church. Um, so you could join us in praying uh, for, I think, Southern Heights Church there in Indiana, um, where uh, they are now looking for a pastor. So it's kind of interesting how the Lord works uh, through it all. So uh, we'll continue to pray. Well, we are in Psalm 65, and uh, we are not going to be able to cover all of it today. Um, we're going to cover parts and then come back and finish the second half. Uh, at some point in sermon prep, it finally just hit me. It's not going to happen, Tim. You're not going to get all of this in one. Um, so we are—we actually are going to start with verse 1, get all the way all to the end of verse 13, but we're going to skip some in the middle. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you it was tough doing that because that's the most important part. That is reason to come back in two weeks to catch the next uh, the next uh, part of that. So that's how it all fits together. So let me read for us out of Psalm 65, this beautiful Psalm of David. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you, shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. Verse 3, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you chose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of of your temple by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness O god of our salvation the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas verse 6 the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might who stills the roaring of the seas the roaring of their waves the tumult of the peoples so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Verse 9. You visit the earth and water it. 
you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its riches, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that you have given us your word by your spirit. He has taught us how to praise you. You deserve such abundant praise for all of who you are and all of what you have done, all of what you are doing and will do. There is no way our broken, sinful lips would ever know how to offer you praise. But you have taught us. Your spirit, he has taught us. And so, Father, I pray this morning that as we look at this text together, that you would get praise from your people. Father, I pray that you would move our hearts to not be settled on the things here and below. But Father, please, Father, direct our hearts' attention to you and the greatness of who you are. Father, thank you for what you've given us in Christ to set free our eyes to see and behold, to see and to savor. I pray that your people would savor you now. I ask these big things. We trust in you. In your name we pray, Father. Amen. So um, we're going to take an interesting route around the chapter this morning. Um, I, I think the, the first two verses... We're going to dive straight into those. Those really get to the heart, the meat of the passage. And, and then we're going to skip the third and the fourth sections. We'll come back to those next time, God willing. Um, and, and, and then we're, we're going to go on down there uh, to verses 6 through 13 and see how this flushes out. So hopefully by the time you get an idea what it is, the passage was written about a thousand years ago, about a thousand years before Jesus, three thousand years ago. So uh, this is written by King David, um, and like all of the Old Testament, it was penned in the language of Hebrew. Um, and so, as we read the uh, English translation of this, it's a translation of the Hebrew. So the Spirit of God, He has worked across the ages, and He has led us to get copies of this Hebrew copied over and over and over and over. In fact, just so we can see how incredible it is what God has done, I've actually put for you in your handout the Hebrew there. If you take a look at it, I hope you can see how amazing it is that someone, not with a Xerox copier and not with a ballpoint pen, but with, uh, with very rudimentary writing devices across the ages, the Spirit of God has led so that this was copied 
symbol for symbol, dot for dot, so that we have it now. Folks, it's incredible. It's incredible. So we have many English translations, many very good English translations of this. They've been trans. These are made up by committees who are uh, Hebrew scholars, and they've worked together to translate it. So I want you to see the various translations for verse 1. And I hope you're going to see something about this verse when we do that together. So I've given you various ones there. So first we'll start with the ESV. That's what we just read together. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you vows shall be performed. Now we're going to go next to the uh, Christian standard. This is one put out by Holman. This is actually one of the newer translations. Praise is rightfully yours, O God in Zion. Vows to you will be fulfilled. Okay? And we're going to go to the New King James Version. Praise is awaiting you, O God in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. Now let's jump to the NIV. Praise awaits you, our God in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. And we're going to go back a little bit. 1611 authorized version of the KJV. Praise waiteth for thee, O God in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. All right. And now finally, we'll wrap it up with the New American Standard Version. There will be silence before you and praise in Zion, God, and the vow will be fulfilled for you. This wasn't the most fulfilling part of your week. I can't imagine what would be. Um, so overall, these are pretty close. But the very first part of the verse, it definitely differs. The ESV talks about praise being due to God. That's how it puts it. The, the Christian standard has a similar notion with praise being rightfully God's. The KJV, the NIV, the, uh, the NKJV, they're all coming from the same source. And so they all talk about praise waiting for God. And then the New American Standard has the idea of silence. So why this discrepancy? Well, it's because the second word in the Hebrew is literally translated as something like resting or waiting or even waiting patiently. So, so now imagine you had to translate from the Hebrew to the English the idea, praise, waiting, God. Praise, resting, God. That's exactly what the, 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 the Hebrew is. You get the word praise, you get waiting or resting or waiting patiently, and then you get God. Well, how do you do that? What do you call that? Praise is waiting, God. And so this is where the ESV goes, praise is due to God. Or praise is rightfully yours. All right, why am I pointing it out? Well, I think the awkwardness in English gets us at something really helpful. And the whole thrust of the chapter, I think, actually is right here. And that is this. The point is supposed to be awkward because the point is supposed to be the works and the ways of God are laid out across the world patiently, often silently waiting for God to be praised for all that he's done. Seriously, this is big. Like you could probably go home after catching this if you catch this point. Don't, but you could. So the works of God are all across the cosmos 
And what are they doing? They are patiently waiting for God to be praised. You might think of the works of God all across a cosmos like a flower ready to bloom. I remember as a kid, I played Nintendo and, and I think there was Mario Brothers. They had a, you would jump on, I don't know if I have this right, but yeah, I need it, so just go with it. You would jump on a mushroom and the mushroom would like come alive and dance around or something. And it didn't do anything till you jumped on it. It's as if the psalmist is saying all of the cosmos, all of creation is just waiting. It's praise waiting for a believer in God to come upon it and praise it. It's like verse one is saying that God has spread out across the cosmos everything he wants for people to praise the ways and the works of God are abundant and they're unquestionably awesome. But only some, and this is key to the whole passage, only some will see them and only some will save them. That is, while the ways and works of God are universal, the praise due to God will not be universal. It'll be special among his people. And so as we continue into verse 1, we are told, where will this praise be found? Praise is due to you, O God, where? In Zion. Praise will be found in Zion. Zion is short for Mount Zion. Mount Zion was the most prominent mountain in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city of the people of God. So this is a shortened way of referring to the capital city of who? The people of God. It is to give us a location of where God will get the praise that is due to him across all of creation. It is not necessarily a location of place. It is a locale of people. It is the locale of the people of God. Praise of God is waiting, waiting patiently where it is waiting to be given from the people of God. God's people will see and savor the great works of God. That is what we do. That is who we are. So verse 1 is telling us all of creation, all the ways, all the works of God have embedded with them praise. And they're just waiting for the people of God to give them praise. Verse 2, O you who hear, to you shall all flesh come. So verse two shows us that while, yes, there's a certain group of people who will praise God, it will be people spread across all flesh. Now, this is not saying that every human will give praise to God. That's not the point. The point is that the people of God, those who will give praise to God, will be spread across all human flesh. Now, this is not a point. <laughs> that would have been readily accepted by the Jews. They were fine with the idea about praise being centered here in Zion. They would not have been nearly as excited about this idea of all the flesh. But this is written a thousand years before Jesus. This is the spirit of God making us ready for King Jesus because when King Jesus comes, praise will come from all of human flesh. In fact, it will include people who are not Jews, people saved by the blood of Jesus, people like us. So summarizing, this is the main thrust. 
the entire passage. Praise of God is lying in wait for all the ways of God spread across the world. This praise will come from the people of God, a people spread across all human flesh. So what are these works of God that have within them embedded praise that will certainly lead to the praise of God getting the praise he's due? That's the second part, verse 6 through 8. The one, this is talking about God, the one who by his strength established the mountains. Being girded with might, who steals the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. So what are the ways and the works of God? Well, look around. It is all his. He established all of it. All the world, all the cosmos is stamped with the phrase made in, just kidding, made by God. He is the great creator. Psalmist Davis, David here tells us what? He established the mountains. Now, brothers and sisters, that's a statement. I don't know what you've established. I haven't established much of anything. But maybe somebody's established something here. Maybe somebody says, hey, you know what? I established a school. Maybe someone is proud that they established a foundation. Maybe somebody here is excited that they established a billion dollar business. God established the mountains. Not, not a mountain. The mountains. That is a statement. And, and just like Mount Zion was a sub-in for the capital of Jerusalem, the mountains is a sub-in for the entire cosmos. It's as if you're looking at all of the cosmos. And what stands out to you most if you're looking at it? Well, the mountains. Yeah, I did that. Well, it's another way of saying I did all of it. So David swells with praise as he declares that God is the creator, the establisher. Here's the point. Creation, all of creation, patiently waits to give credit to God. We have a wreath on our front door at the house. It looks real. Don't let it fool you. It is not a real wreath. But try telling that to the bird who worked hard to make a nest in it for weeks. Now, at our house, there's been a lot of drama around our front door. I'm not going to lie to you. I have some mixed feelings about this whole thing. But we now have a nest in the wreath so that every time I walk into our front door, I can see little birdies with their little fuzzy hair and their little beady eyes looking back at me. And I open the door and the little birdies take a ride into the house. Then I gently shut the door and the birdies are back outside. Um, and I'm not, I'm not going to try to even pretend that I have been praiseful about all of this every time. 
um, that I've dealt with this. But I got to tell you, one thing that I'm thankful for is I cannot imagine there's any other way that I am stopping and actually gazing upon the idea of how birds come about into the world. But I have. I've, I've had no other choice. So God makes these this creature who makes its own nest out of my pine needles, but that's a whole other, who makes its own nest, who lays the eggs that gives rise to more creatures who can then make their own nest, who then makes more eggs. It's not just like tweet, tweet. It's like tweet, tweet, repeat. It's crazy. Folks, just for one second, what type of genius of a mind thinks this up? How creative, how brilliant, how complex, how simple, how beautiful, how kind is the mind of the one who thought that up. And I've watched this mama bird. Now, she's obviously not the smartest of the pack. After all, she made a nest on a fake wreath on a door that is open many times a day and often not gently. But all that said, I've watched her take care of these birds, brings them food. I mean, just constantly watching her. And I'm moved. I don't even know Mama Bird. I'm moved by the way that she cares for the birds. That is just one example. I have been made by the same beautiful mind that created the birds. So you got me made by the same beautiful mind that created the birds. And what's happening? On a daily basis, I'm amazed. God has made the birds and embedded praise in them and made me so that I will praise him. You see, God has made and ordained his own praise. I've been left with nothing else to do but to pull out verse 8. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. I stand in awe of what? Of one bird and her babies. I'm in awe of her. And she's probably not even the best mama bird out there. I know the rest of the mama birds are talking about her. I can't believe she did that to those babies, right? But here God has stamped his creation in such a beautiful way that now we can do nothing else but stand in awe of it. That's what creation should make us do. We should see it and savor what God has done. So just, you have to let this soak in because this is so countercultural. You, you won't find this outside of the scriptures these days. Nature, God has given creation so that we will praise Him. That's the gift of creation. And this is why our secular culture has had no other choice but to try to hijack the subject of science. Let me explain. At the heart of the notion of modern science is a process called induction. 
Induction, it's a logical process whereby you go about and you gather a whole bunch of data, you gather the data, and then you organize it, and from that you draw conclusions about the data. The subject of science is, uh, it has honed its attention on the physical world around us, and it gathers lots of data about it, and it synthesizes it and draws conclusions. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, far beyond it, that is awesome. That's a great idea. But watch out, because as you begin to observe the immense details of the creation, whether you are looking into a microscope or you're looking through the lens of a telescope, whether you're looking at the rainforest or a safari, you cannot help but realize there's a beautiful mind to whom credit must be given for this. And that's why the Darwinistic Project was welcomed like it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. So for lost, fallen men who have observed the details of God's creation, it became necessary to do something, to do anything, to prevent God from getting the praise he's due if you just follow the logical conclusion of what you're seeing. Anytime you explore the depths of someone's work, I don't care if it's a construct, uh, construction site or beautiful uh, painting, the only rightful conclusion is to give the maker credit. And so what has happened for lost fallen men? They will do anything but to keep from praising God even if it means denying the most logical, reasonable conclusion. Ask the Academy this question. From where did all of this stuff arise? Answer, it just popped out of nowhere. Friends, that's not even close to plausible. That would not work for explaining the existence of a cupcake in a kitchen. And most of the most educated scientists in the world accept that as their answer for the existence of the entire cosmos. Don't you see what's happening? This isn't a reason, reasonable or logical conclusion. It's a rebellion, a refusal to give praise where praise is due. And similarly, there sits at the very heart of the incredibly sad idea of gender identity. We must see that the idea of a person pretending that they will determine their gender isn't so much about gaining their freedom from their ability to decide. It's an attempt, a futile attempt, to strip the creator from his power to create. It's a direct attempt to sandblast off the stamp declaring made in the image of God. The effort to decide one's gender is not about gender as much as it is about authority. The effort to change one's gender is an effort to claim ultimate control over ourselves. And it's an effort doomed to fail. But here's what I want you to stop and see. And this is what I think this drives at in this song. 
the most elite institutions in our land, the highest levels of intelligentsia, there is a common belief that the cosmos came, came out of nothing. And there really is no essential difference between a boy and a girl. But if you walk into a kindergarten classroom, the very first step in our education system, and you try to convince them that something comes from nothing, and there's no difference between a boy and a girl, they will not follow that. They will not agree. What's the point? The point is that God has embedded praise in every part of his creation, every creature and every element of his creation. But that praise will be denied. It will be denied in the midst of fallen creatures unless God opens our eyes to see and behold it. So let's not be surprised when the world around us, the world outside of Zion, works to stifle praise due to God. But God's people, those who reside in Zion, they will praise God. As God's people, we must see the works of God and offer him praise. Praise awaits you, O God, in Zion. But notice, this is a work of God's grace that we rightly see. It's a work of God turning our hearts and turning them by the cross of Jesus. All right, so we've seen that God gets praise from his creation. He deserves praise in his creation. And then in the next section, 9 through 13, the final part we'll look at, we're told that like God's creation beckons praise, so also does God's provision. Look for me, look with me in 9 through 13. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God, it is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you've prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty, your wagon tracks. They overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. So key to understanding the poetic language of David here. It's the nature of Harvard, uh, of water to a strong harvest. So uh, this is hard for us to understand because we actually get water on a daily basis with almost no effort at all. We turn a knob or slightly move a lever and all of a sudden there's water. This is unheard of in, in, in human history. In fact, to be quite honest, it's still rare for most people on the globe. If you've ever gone to a developing nation or third world country, you will be struck. By a lot of things, but I'm telling you, one of the things that will blow your mind is the amount of work that is spent getting water, drinking, cooking, cleaning, God doesn't just leave the world to its own devices. He comes and he waters it. He gives it to us so that there can be a harvest. And watering the earth, God provides the earth with a bountiful harvest. He says in verse 11 that God crowns the years with bounty 
and his wagon tracks overflow with abundance. What is he doing? He's painting a picture of God stepping across the earth. And as he steps, he just drops tons of plenty. He clothes the meadow with abundant flocks and he and gives grass to feed the flocks. He does this year after year, time after time. So God is not simply a creator who created the world and walked away. He is constantly driving his wagon across the earth and filling it up. He's constantly providing food, water, health, energy, and industry. So one of the ironies of mass provision is the more you provide a person, the more unlikely they are to offer you credit or thanks. The more you provide for a person, then the more often they are or less likely they are to give you thanks. Here's an example. So I've, I've been traveling before and get to a city and it's late and the restaurants are closed and you get there to the hotel. Uh, and often I'm very hungry. And so most hotels, uh, they have a canteen and you can, uh, you know, they got crackers and you can get a candy bar. Uh, you have to pay something ridiculous uh, for it. Uh, but in those situations, I have always been so thankful for that canteen, for those, those crackers or the candy bar. And it always puts me in this funny moment where there I am thanking, oftentimes profusely thanking the, you know, the guy at the front desk for the opportunity to pay him $9 for some crackers. But when you have nothing, you're thankful for it. Now, on the other, I've had the uh, privilege uh, of going before to a Brazilian steakhouse. I don't know if you've ever done this, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an incredible thing. So you sit there and they bring you just different cuts of meat. They just keep coming around and, and they keep bringing you meat. And the funniest thing happens, the very first guy who comes and he puts the meat on your plate, you say, thank you. Thank you. Man, by about time 19, you forget there's even somebody bringing the meat. You're trying to figure out, now, was that that cut that I really liked? Or is that one that was like, eh? You're not even looking at the guy. You're just grabbing the stuff and throwing it on your plate. Why? Well, because you get so used to it. Friends, most of us live in abundance, vast abundance. Just given the fact that we live in this nation at this time in human history, we live in vast abundance. And so our daily lives they look a whole lot more like a Brazilian steakhouse than a hotel canteen. And therefore, we are so prone to forget the God who gives and provides and find ourselves focusing merely on the thing brought. What's the latest thing here? This might be a fitting attitude for those outside of Zion. But it is not befitting for the people of God. The fact that we enjoy access to food and water and shelter and health care and the amazing other provisions, it gives us constant reason to praise God. Imagine if you got in your car every morning and the fuel gauge shows full, but you stop and realize, I haven't been to a gas station. In years, surely at some point we would be prone to ask the question, who keeps filling up the tank? Our God has filled our lives with such abundance, such mercy, 
It is beyond unreasonable that I, we do not offer him praise for his constant provision. The lack of gratitude for God's abundant provision in our world, in the hearts of even his own people, it's astonishing. It might be a normal response for those outside of Zion. It's not the right response for the people of God. And so as we've considered the works of God in creating and the works of God in providing, I do hope that we see there's a vast difference in the response for the people of God and those who are not followers of God. God has clearly revealed himself as creator, sustainer, and provider. But so many in the world have failed to see and believe. But folks, that's not unheard of. Do you realize the greatest gift that God ever gave the world is the presence of his son? Let me read to you a, a portion of John chapter 12. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So those seeing, they didn't believe him so that the very word spoken by Isaiah 700 years later would come true. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So here was the God of the universe standing right in front of us. Folks, this is the ultimate pinnacle of established creation. The ultimate example of bountiful provision. I mean, created flesh filled up with God. Can creation get any better than that and can the provision get any better than that? And, and what was our response? Show us something, anything. Can't you show us something? It's astonishing that many around us don't see the plain ways and works of God. But it's actually more astonishing that I don't see it, that we don't see it. Friends, we need the supernatural work of God to open our eyes and let us see and savor the works of God. We need a Savior to ransom us from our sin. We need a Savior to open our eyes. God willing, next time we will go to verses 2 through 6 and we will see that that's exactly what the psalmist has called for, a Savior. For now, how humbling, but how true. We need a supernatural work of God to allow us to see and acknowledge the works of God. But praise God, in His mercy, He has provided us even the very provision of praise. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your abundant kindness. Thank you that you have provided way beyond. Thank you that you continue to provide over and over. Father, I pray. Pray that if there's someone here, surely there is. Who has not looked upon Jesus Christ as Savior and found the solution to the problem of sin and had their eyes opened by the Spirit of God, I pray you'll do that. Father, we live in a world that wants to do anything but give you credit for what you have so obviously done. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that we will see and savor your works. We will trust in your provision and that we will give you the praise that is rightfully yours. We ask these things to you through King Jesus, by your spirit who's given us his word. Amen.